Our Father, we encounter so much, so much that is fleeting. Everything around us falls apart. The cars we drive, cell phones we use, the clothes we wear, um, the buildings we reside and and go about our days in, it it all withers away and falls apart. But your word stands forever. And I pray that your spirit would etch this your word into our hearts, that we might uh, leave here having been changed through the proclamation of your word. People don't don't leave an encounter with you unchanged, and so we ask that your spirit would speak to our hearts, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, there's, there's moments in life when the temperature gets turned up. Uh, one, one example of that would be in 2004, the Pistons and the Pacers, at the time, big rivals were playing each other, and uh, things got very ugly in that game. Uh, there, there was, it was probably the people say it's the worst brawl in professional sports history. Uh, there was a fight between the players, between the fans and the players. Chairs were being thrown. Fists were being thrown, players against fans, fans against players. It was malice at the palace, is what they call it. And, and, you know, those moments in life, when the temperature turns up, can you imagine being there? It's pretty intense, right? The temperature turns up, and people start doing things that they would not do under normal circumstances. And the response to that is usually, well, I, you know, I got caught up in the moment. Sorry, I kind of got caught up in the hysteria. But actually, what those moments do when the temperature rises and and there's intensity in the air, they actually reveal, it's like an x-ray of the heart. They reveal what's really going on in the heart, much like alcohol does. You know, somebody says, well, I'm sorry I said that. That was the alcohol talking. I'm sorry I acted that way. That was the alcohol No, the alcohol revealed what was actually going on in your heart. There's these x-ray moments where we get to peer into the soul of another. And we're going to, that, that moment happens this morning in the passage we just read. There's an intensity to the, to the arrest of Jesus that we just read about in the garden. And it's going to, and let's just kind of set this up real quickly. So, Jesus and his disciples for chapters now. We, we started looking at this back in September of, of this past year. And so for months now, we've been looking at the night before Jesus' death. He, he, they, they eat the supper together. Jesus washes their feet. He teaches them. He prays for them. He, in his teaching, he's revealing to them the mysteries of his work and the mysteries of the universe And now all of that is about to change because there's going to be a violent intrusion and the temperature is going to rise. The intensity and the gravity of the moment is going to increase in an instant. And we're going to, and this is the beginning of the passion of Christ. And we're going to be here all the way up to Easter when we will then consider the resurrection. And so we're going to spend quite a few weeks looking at this. But I want you to remember... What happened way back in Genesis, or I'm sorry, not Genesis, in John chapter 13, verse 27. Jesus says that one of you disciples is going to betray me. 
And Peter says, well, who is it? It wasn't Peter. It was one of the other disciples. Who is it? And Jesus actually answers. He says, the one whom I give this morsel of bread to, he's the one who's going to betray me. And he gives the morsel of bread. Chapter 13, verse 27. Judas took the morsel. Satan entered him. And Jesus said, he commanded him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And so after Judas received the morsel of bread, he immediately went out into the night, John says, into the darkness, because he's, he's walking in darkness. And so now, after chapters, Judas has done his deed, his fateful deed, and he comes back with a whole force of, of men to arrest Jesus. And we're going to see, as the temperature's turned up in this moment, we're going to see a couple of things. One, the misguided zeal of the world, and the misguided zeal of Peter, And then we're also going to see, it's going to reveal Christ's radical commitment to us, his church. So we're going to see the misguided zeal of of the world and of Peter. And we're going to see the radical commitment that Jesus has to us in this moment. Where you kind of see into that. We're going to see Christ's heart for his church in this moment where the temperature rises. So let's look, verses 1 and 2. First, the misguided zeal of the world. Verses 1 and 2. When Jesus spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook uh, Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now this is a... John says, he goes out of his way to say, this is one of Jesus' favorite meeting spots. And John's making a point here by including this. If you're a wanted man, remember way back when, when, when they left Jerusalem months ago? They, uh, they left because they believed Jesus. They were trying to kill Jesus aggressively. It was clear they're trying to kill Jesus. So they left, and now they've come back. And Jesus knows this. Even his disciples know that he's a wanted man, and the likelihood of his death is, is very high. And so what, if you're a man on the run, are you going to go to the place where people know you hang out? Unless... It's part of your plan, unless you're commanding the situation. And so Jesus goes to where he knows he'll be found, in the garden, a place where he, a favorite place where he meets with his disciples. Just like when he commanded Judas to leave. He said, Judas, do what you're going to do quickly. And Judas, without even saying a word, left immediately in response. Jesus is in control of this situation. And, and then we have a confront- the confrontation. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons, right? It's quite the force that is assembled. There are Roman powers. There's, there's Roman soldiers. That's the soldiers there. There's sort of like kind of the Jewish police for the religious leaders. There's the high priests. And the Pharisees, what, what Frederick Bruner, he translates it as the senior pastors and the seriously religious people are there and they come and they have lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, so quite the force, right? It's all the powers of the world. It's secular powers. It's religious powers. It's political powers represented. It's the Gentile powers, the powers of the world. It's the powers of, of, of the Jewish people. All of them are assembled there. To stop God. You can imagine the intensity, right, of this moment. The powers of the world confront 
the power of God. And what do they have with them? Well, they have lanterns and torches. They have light. John's making, making a point here. They have light because they walk in darkness. They don't know what they're doing. They need light, so they have lights, but they also have weapons, means for exacting force in the world. These are the, the things we take up, we humans take up to kind of get things done, to throw our weight around, to throw our, our authority and our power around. That's what you, if you want to throw your power around, you weaponize, and that's what they've done. And it appears, though, that they're on the offensive, right? I mean, they're, they're coming to him. They've got their searchlights. They've got their weapons. But look, but look at what happens. That's actually not what's happening. Jesus confronts them. Jesus initiates the encounter. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus is initiating the encounter. And they answered, verse 5, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am. Literally, that's, that's, that's what he says in the Greek. I am. Not, not I am he. I am. And then look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Armed men falling back at the word of God, the word of Christ. Because he gives, he gives them in this moment his divine name. Right? It's the same name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am. It's the same. Anytime humanity has an encounter with God, they fall back. They shrink back since the fall. Right? Adam and Eve encountering God and they hide in the bushes. Isaiah in the great grand, the Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 he sees the Lord. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Right? People, even if it's an angel of the Lord, people wilt. They fall back. They fall to the ground. And here this pack of wolves, the powers of the world, come to him in the darkness, and they're seeking to, to bind their creator, God, armed with batons and swords and knives and spears. And does Christ come at them with weapons? No, he, he comes at them with a question. Whom do you seek? And then an answer, I am. Listen to, listen to what St. Augustine says about this encounter here. He says, with no other weapon than his own solitary voice uttering the words, I am, he knocked down, repelled, and rendered helpless that great crowd. Even with all their ferocious hatred and terror of arms, for God lay hidden in that human flesh, an eternal day was so obscured in those human limbs that he was looked for with lanterns and torches to be slain in darkness. I am, he says, and throws the wicked to the ground. What, and then this is Augustine's question, what will he do when he comes as judge? Who did this when giving himself up to be judged? What will his power be like when he comes to reign, who had this kind of power when he came to die? Right? Their zeal, the zeal of these men, of this force, is misguided because it's going up against the zeal and power of the Lord. But let's keep going. Look at verse 7. He asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, look at this, now he's 
He's giving commands. If you seek me, let these men go. These men go. He, he's commanding the force. He's, he's not asking to let these people go. He, it's an imperative. He's telling them, I command you, let these people go. He's giving orders. Right? He's throwing them down with the words, I am. And now he's giving them orders, and they listen to him. Now, all of this power of Christ demonstrated here in this moment is lost on Peter. And that brings us to the next point within this is, is Peter's misguided zeal. Christ is demonstrating here, just in a, in a little, just a, a dash sort of fashion, his power. And Peter misses it. And so Peter comes into the rescue. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter having a sword, and it's really more like a dagger that he has, he drew it and struck the high priest's servant's servant and cut off his right ear. Right? Now, I want, I want to just set this up. The last thing that Jesus told Peter, you know what it was? You're going to deny me three times. It was just hours ago. And you can imagine him mulling over that. And in this moment of, of passion, Peter thinks to himself, oh yeah, Jesus? <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to fight for you. I've got this. And he probably is aiming for a lethal blow. He's going for the jugular. But he misses, and he gets the right ear. And, um, and, 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 and of course, Jesus instructs him to put his sword away. But I, I want us to think about this for a moment. Last week, we saw how the church, in Jesus' prayer, high priestly prayer, that the church is to be one, is to be united. That's how we're to relate to one another. I think right here we get some instruction on how we ought to relate to the world, especially when the temperature's turned up, especially when there's an intensity to the moment. It's dark. There's this, cru this cru force of men looking at them with weapons and torches and lanterns, their lights shining in the, in, in the night light. What are you going to do in that moment? That's an intense moment, isn't it? It's an intense moment. When, when people are staring down you with weapons and they want to hurt you, they may kill you. Peter does what, what many of us would do. He fights. He sees their weapons and the threat they pose, and he responds in kind. He takes a weapon himself, and he strikes. He strikes first. Now, like I said, the temperature in our own age is, is heating up, we might say. What are we to do? There's a lot of Christians asking that question. How are we to, to relate to the world? Are we to fight? Are we to take up swords or arms? Are we to... If the world is nasty, if the world is nasty and the world resorts to name-calling and mudslinging, are we to reply in kind? Are we to draw swords, little, little daggers, word daggers, to hurl at, at the enemy, at the world? I don't think so. Paul says we, we face a different, a different battle. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't take up the same means that the world takes up because we're, we're operating on a very different level, and our battle is against a very different foe. Uh, unseen spiritual forces is what Paul says, not flesh and blood. So we take up what Christ has taken up here, the word of God. We, 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 we proclaim truth in love to the world. 
That's the means, and it's the most power. As we said at the outset, it's the one thing that lasts forever. It's powerful. The Lord is about to conquer the world through quiet submission, like a lamb led to the, sol- to the slaughter. And Peter, in this moment, by taking the sword and intervening, you know, in his mind, defending the Lord, he's actually getting in the way. It's a, it's a lot like what happened when Jesus pre- foretold his, his death and resurrection. Remember what Peter said? Peter rebuked him for it. Jesus said, I must die and suffer and be raised. And Peter said, may it never be. And remember what Jesus rebuked Peter back and said? Get behind me, Satan. Peter, you, you represent the evil one in your effort to stop me from doing what I came to do. And here, Jesus, and Peter's doing something similar right here. He's getting in the way. So Jesus says, verse 11, Peter, put your sword into its, into its sheath. Remember when, Peter's, when Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples and Peter said, no, Lord, you don't wash my feet. Like, you know, sort of kind of felt very, kind of a lot of zeal for Peter to kind of say that to Jesus. And Jesus, do you remember what he said? If I can't wash your feet, you have no share with me. If, see, Peter's thinking, this is the Lord. I can't accept him as my servant, the person who washes my feet. And Jesus says, no, Peter, the only way you can have me as Lord is if you accept me as your servant. You must first accept me as your servant, and only then can you have me as Lord, is what Jesus is saying to Peter. And, and see, in both instances, at the foot washing and then here with the, with the dagger, Peter's working out of the framework of this world. And actually, he's putting in jeopardy his ticket to the world to come as a result of that. He's trying to stop Jesus from saving him, saving all of us. And still, Jesus is merciful. And so we turn there now. Um, we turn to uh, Christ's commitment to us. And it's important that we do so because I think all of us have in our hearts this tendency to worry about whether, am I Peter? Do I get in the way? Maybe even in an honest effort to defend Jesus, to proclaim the faith, maybe I can somehow get in the way of the mission of Christ. Or even worse, we wonder, could I be Judas? Might I be the kind of person that sells Christ out for some silver, as Judas has just done? We begin to wonder if if Christ's mercy may not run out. Like, sure, Jesus can forgive my past sins, but what about the sins I committed this past week? that I've committed week after week, and I, I get this ongoing struggle. What about those sins? Well, we're going to see here, as I said, and as the temperature rises, we're going to peer into Christ's heart, and we're going to see his radical commitment to us. And we're going to see it. I, I want us to just highlight three things uh, here. One, the location, and then two, the command, and three, the cup. So Christ's radical commitment to us, we see it in the location, the command, and the cup. So first, the location. Remember, Jesus is in the driver's seat in this moment. He's orchestrating this. He's led the disciples to this garden. And why would they wind up there? Why would they be, one, in a place where everybody knew that they would be, and two, in a garden of all places? Because a garden is where it went wrong for the human race. 
where it all started for us. Humanity in a garden. And Christ is, is, is beginning the road to recovery for the human race, the road to rescue in the same spot, in a garden. It's where it all started for the human race, and it's where it's going to end. It's where, it's where the serpent is going to be crushed. It's at least going to begin in a garden. And I, I think it's, it's just worth noting how masterfully designed this whole story of God's rescue is. That it started in a garden. The work of Christ begins in a garden. It demonstrates his commitment to us, to our salvation. The, the, the work of Christ was not an afterthought. It began before the foundation of the world to work out this plan of salvation in the world. And it's poetic that it begins and ends in a garden. The second thing I want us to see is the command. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Jesus, Jesus told the, the force that's the gathered, I told you I am, so if you seek me, let these men go. And this was, this was to fulfill, John adds a comment here. This was to fulfill the word that he has spoken. Of those whom the Father gave, I have lost not one. Jesus is doing exactly what he said when he said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I protect my sheep, and I don't lose one. Listen to how Leslie Newbegin puts it. When the wolves come, the good shepherd doesn't flee, but goes forth to lay down his life so that the sheep may be safe. That's his commitment to his church, to his flock, to the sheep. But I want us to, to really settle in here on the cup. What is Christ about to do in this work, in this passion? He's been talking about it all night. He talked about it at the foot washing. He talked about it at the supper. He proclaimed it at the supper with his disciples. He spent hours teaching them of what, of the work that he's about to do. And here's how he puts it here in our passage today. Verse 11. He tells Peter, put your sword away. And then he tells Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What does that mean? Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? There's a whole deep and rich background to this cup language, but to put it real short, the cup represents the wrath and judgment of holy God. That's what it refers to. Listen how Psalm 75 puts it. Psalm 75, 8. For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine, foam, the wine foams, it is well mixed, and he pours it out. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs of the cup of the Lord's wrath. Surely the wicked must drink every last drop of the judgment of holy God. Now, remember way back at the beginning of John's gospel, we looked at it two years ago now, the woman at the well and they're there at noontime. It's high noon. It's hot. It's sunny. The woman is at the well when nobody else would be there because you don't get, you get water in the morning and evening, not when it's hot in the middle of the day. But she's there because she's an outcast. And this is her time to get water by herself. And Jesus encounters her. And remember what he tells her. I, I tell you the truth. I can give you living water that if you drink from, you'll never thirst again. You'll never thirst again. Now the question is, well, how can Jesus provide such living, everlasting water that I will never thirst again if I have? And the answer is, what's about to happen? 
Do you remember what happens on the cross? What he says just before his death? I thirst. I thirst. Because what's happening on the cross is Jesus is drinking down the cup of wrath aimed at sinners. He's taking it. And he's drinking it all every last drop. Until he says, right after I thirst, he says, it is finished. He drinks every last drop of that cup. He thirsted and drank deeply of death so that we wouldn't thirst and we could drink deeply of life, living water that he promises us. Second Corinthians, Paul explains it well. He puts it like this in chapter 5, verse 21. He says, for our sake... God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He got our sin. We got his righteousness. You see see the transfer, the transaction that took place on the cross? He, He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. He gets our death. We get our life. He gets our soul thirst. I thirst. We get his soul satisfaction. He gets our cup of death. We get his cup of life. He gets the cup of judgment, the cup of God's wrath, drinks drinks it all the way down so that we could get the cup of blessing and get it all the way to the max. The blessings of God. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. See, Christianity is, is fundamentally different from every other religion in this regard. Because what Christianity proclaims is a work done for us, primarily. It's the good news. It's what Christ did for us on our behalf, which we are to simply receive, to accept. That's it. Every other religion is about what I can do for God or for the divine or for the gods, whatever it is, pagan, whatever it is. Every other human constructed religion is all about how can I serve the gods? When I was in college, I spent some weeks in Lhasa, Tibet, a place that is just charged with, with religion. And at the, at the pinnacle of that city that feels like it's on top of the world is the Potala Palace. And we would see a constant flow of religious pilgrims coming into that city, coming into that city. And they were working their prayer beads. They were spinning their prayer wheels. They were prostrating themselves as they made their way up to the palace. It was a, pic- it was a perfect picture of religion, which is about what I can do to please God or to please the gods. Peter gives us another good picture. How can I please Christ? I'll take a sword, I'll take up the weapons, and I'll fight for, fight for Jesus. And Jesus says, put the sword away. This is my work, Peter, and I'm going to drink it all the way down. I'm taking the cup and I'm going to drink it all the way to the bitter end. And it's just like, just like the foot washing. Peter, I serve you. I work for you. I drink the cup down for you. So, so step aside. See, we, here's the thing. We either accept this work of God, of our creator, Jesus, the image of the invisible God. We either accept that or we fight against it through what feels like religious zeal. I mean, Peter felt really awesome, I bet, in that moment. Courageous, bold, making that move, didn't he? He felt like he was doing the Lord a favor, but he's getting in the way of the Lord in his work for Peter and for us. And here's the thing. 
human zeal looks really strong for like a few, a few moments. In a matter of minutes, a little 13-year-old girl says, hey, as Peter's warming his hand, Jesus is on trial, getting grilled by the, 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 uh, the powers of the world. And a little girl asked Peter a very simple question, grills him, right, by the fire. He's warming his hands. You're one of Jesus' followers. No, 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 that's not, that's not me. Three times he denies Jesus. The zeal wore off, right? We don't have the power to drink the cup of God's judgment, to appease God's holy and righteous wrath. We just don't have it in us. It's, we're incapable of it. If we want a share of Christ and his work, we must receive his work for us. His work for us is our rest. And our hearts fight it. They fight that so hard. We have this keen sense that we have a debt. And we work so hard, whether religious or not, we're all working to somehow validate our existence before our creator. But only Jesus can pay it. And by the way, the invitation to rest in the work of Christ, it's as wide as the human race. Did you see that John na- named the, the man who, whose ear was cut off? Isn't that interesting that his name gets thrown in there? Malchus? Who was this Malchus? Why does John name him? There's so many characters in this story that are unnamed. But Malchus is named. And likely what, what's, what's going on here is John is saying, look, to his contemporaries, Malchus can still be found. Malchus is running around Jerusalem. He's still living. He's an eyewitness. He can attest to what's happened here. And I believe that Malchus, and by the way, this is Jesus' last miracle before his death. He's going to, he, John doesn't mention it, but he heals Malchus. He puts Malchus's ear back on and heals him in the midst of all this frenzy. And I believe that Malchus, we don't know this, but I, I believe that Malchus became a follower of Christ. And John is saying, if you want to see the work of Christ, go talk to Malchus. It's as wide as the human race. And here's the thing. We do know that people that were responsible for the death of Christ converted and became followers of him. I mean, Saul's the most notable one of, of that bunch. It's as wide, the invitation to receive the work of Christ is as wide as the human race. Now, what does all this mean for us? Well, we're very good at settling Settling, despairing of God, believing, sure, Christ's mercy is available and my sins are forgiven, but he's not, he's not going to bring about good in my life. We despair of situations. We feel as though some situations are beyond repair. I mean, what about Judas? Is Judas beyond repair? It ends badly for Judas, but I don't know that it had to. Dorothy Sayers gives a good reflection on Judas. This is what she says. Judas betrayed Jesus and shortly thereafter threw the silver down and hanged himself and thereby committed the final, the fatal, the most pitiful error of all for he despaired of God and himself and he never waited to see the resurrection. Had he done so, there would have been an encounter, an opportunity But unhappily for himself, he did not. He never saw the triumph of Christ fulfilled upon him, through him, and in spite of him. He saw the dreadful payment paid and never knew what victory had been purchased with the price. 
Sayers makes a good point. She says, we're all like Judas. We're, we're, we are too quick to hang ourselves, or, or worse, to hang others, despairing of God. You see, if, if we fail to rest in the complete, it is finished work of Christ, it leads us to either beat ourselves up in self-pity or beat others up in a sense of self-righteousness. We either, we either lose sight of our own brokenness before God and become prideful and self-righteous and think, hang everybody else. Or we fail to see God's love for us and his care for us, his pouring himself out, his serving us. And we despair and we wallow in self-pity. The work of Christ centers us in this world, helping us to see humbly our sin, but also be swept up into the glory of his grace for us in Christ. So put the sword away, put the towel and basin down, and rest in the good shepherd's work for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, this moment, this encounter in which we see the heart of man, and we also see the heart of Christ, the heart of you, your heart toward sinners. We thank you for your relentless pursuit. Even those who were trying to help you, Peter, um, getting in your way, I, we thank you that you kindly told Peter to put the sword away. And you kindly came to him following the resurrection, following his denials, and expressed your love to him personally. We give you thanks for that. We pray that you would continue to tell us of your love as we come uh, to these sacraments, baptism and the supper. They speak volumes, and we pray that your spirit would speak through them now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.